So, Mark chapter 9, uh, let's start at verse 2, and then I'll pray. It says, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And, they appeared, and, and, and there appeared with them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And they were coming down the mountain, and he charged them not to tell anyone what they've seen until the Son of Man has been risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this raising from the dead might mean. Verse 14. This is our text this morning. And when they came to the disciples, so they came off the mountain, they came down to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with the disciples. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And, and then Jesus asked them, what are you guys arguing about? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams, and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought him, the boy to him. And when the, the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground, and he rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has he been, this been happening to him? And dad said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd was running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out of him. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when they had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why, why couldn't we cast out the demon? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but by prayer. That's our text this morning. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the wonderful gift of faith. And I know that there are many, most of us, a lot of us, Lord, that follow you, that follow Jesus, that are followers of Christ. And if we're real honest with ourselves, we believe in you, Lord, but there are a lot of doubts that we have. And I know some people feel guilty about their doubts in you. They follow you, they love you, but they doubt. There's certain things that they doubt, and there's guilt associated with that, and there's all these things. But I thank you, God, that, we, that you are big enough to handle our doubts, and we can come to you with all of them. And I know there are people in here that, that don't follow you, and they have doubts as well. I pray, God, that you would show us your grace and your power this morning, 
I ask that you would make this message make sense to the hearts of your people. And I pray, God, that you would that you would open our eyes, that we would see Jesus. We look to you and we love you. I ask that you would use me this morning, anoint me, God. I need your help so desperately. I, too, like, like the Father said, I believe, but help my unbelief. And when we look at things in our own lives, there's certain things that we believe that you can do, but help our unbelief. When I think about the city, there's so many things that you can do, but I believe, but help my unbelief. And that's how we come to you this morning. We believe, help our unbelief. Bless us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we've been in the Gospel of Mark now um, since we started, um, since we started the, the church almost a year ago now. And the reason why we're, we've been in the book of Mark, we've said that the book of Mark is all about Jesus. It's all about who Jesus is. And the section that we're in deals with what it looks like to actually follow Jesus. See, the first half of the book of Mark has been all about his nature and the character of Christ and his character, who he is, as, as Jesus is performing all these wonderful miracles and, 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 and wonderful acts of, of, of faith and these, and, these, and these teachings and all this stuff. It's all about his character. But then when you get right to the Mount of Transfiguration, right where we read today, when Jesus comes off the mount, that starts a new section in the book of Mark that goes to about chapter 10 that's all about what does it look like to actually follow Jesus. If this is who he is, if Christ is all of these wonderful things, what does it look like for the follower of Jesus? What does it look like for us? And this question comes up in this text before us today. What happens when our faith, when our faith in God, when our faith in Christ, when that fails? What happens when our faith fails? As followers of Jesus, our faith fails, and consequently, we fail. What happens? I mean, how much faith is enough faith? You might have heard that. Man, you've got to believe. You've got to have faith. Well, how much faith? If you're, if you're a thinking person, you might, you might think like that. You're like, okay, I want to have more faith, but how much is enough faith? Can you quantify faith? Does our faith have to hit a certain percentage in the faith meter for God to actually do something? It's like your faith is here, and like it's right here, but if it was right here, it's like, it's like 50%, then, you know, I can, God can work with 50% faith. But 10%, no, he can't work with that. Like how much faith? I believe, how much more faith do I need for God to actually do something? How much faith does God need from us in order for him to act? And what if you're not a follower of Jesus? And as a pastor, I will say, what if you're not a follower of Jesus yet? With hopeful expectation, I'll say that. What if you're not a follower of Jesus yet? What if you've been invited here or something like that, or you're, you work with someone who comes and you, you got invited here, you're like, I'm not a follower of Jesus, but I'm just here checking this out. It's Christmas time, there's a tree, I'm here. Cool. What if you're not a follower of Jesus yet? How much faith do you need? What, how much faith is required of you for God to act, to do something on your behalf, to, as this helpless dad asks Jesus, have compassion on me and help me? How much faith do you need? How much faith is required for the people who, who follow Jesus and the people who do not follow Jesus? How much faith is required? And this is what our text deals with today. Our text today is much more about a story of believing and doubting than it is about a miracle. Though there is a miracle here. You saw it. Jesus heals this boy that has a demon. That is a miracle. But the, the whole point, the main storyline, the main point of the storyline, the subject here, the overwhelming subject in this story is faith and doubt and unbelief. And the disciples saying to Jesus, why couldn't we cast out the demon? And then Jesus saying to the dad, if I can help you, 
All things are possible for him who believes. And then the dad responding, I believe, help my unbelief. This story is about believing and it's about doubt. Now listen, we logically separate faith and unbelief as opposites, don't we? Okay, faith is over here and belief is over here. You can't have both of them. You either faith, you have faith or you doubt. You either trust God or you don't. There's no middle ground. But what if in the Christian experience, faith and unbelief are simultaneous realities? You're like, whoa, dude, you don't even sound like a pastor right now. Who are you? <laughs> what if they're, they're, they're both and? What if like in the book of Mark, because Mark's been doing this for a while now. Remember the guy that was, that was blind, but then he could see, but he could not really see completely? He can see, but not see? And the disciples are faithful in that they stick with Jesus, but they're faithless. And here we see a, a dad who is, has faith but has doubts. What if I said that followers of Jesus, Christian disciples, are simultaneously believers and doubters? That's what we're going to try to work through this morning. Because that's what our text brings before us. If you read this text, that's what it puts to bear on our minds. Can you follow Jesus and have both faith and doubt at the same time? And this is how we'll try to do it this morning. First, we'll look at Jesus and the dad. We'll just kind of go through the story. Jesus and the dad, Jesus and the disciples, and then Jesus and us, okay? So first, Jesus and the dad. So the scene opens as Jesus and Peter, James, and John, remember, they went up to the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, and all the rest of the disciples stayed back. Peter, James, and John, and Jesus come down from the glorious Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus shined with all of heaven's glory. I love Mark's little interpretive thing in there. Hey, and no mom could bleach clothes this white. I mean, if you're like, if you like white clothes, like bright whites, and you like use bleach, no one on earth can bleach in this white. I mean, so white, it glowed, okay? Jesus was, was translucent. He's glowing up there on the Mount of Transfiguration, and then Moses and Elijah were there talking. It was amazing. This glorious mount, Jesus goes down this mountain now, and he comes down from the mountain to the disparity of humanity. Okay, you, you got to get the way Mark tells his story here. This is so amazing. It goes from glory, I mean, just think about the mountain and how glorious it would have been for Jesus, who was normal to them, to all of a sudden start glowing. And then you hear a voice from heaven, this is my son, listen to him. And then Moses and Elijah, and if you don't know, they're both were Old Testament people, they haven't been around for a very long time. And they were there. And then they were probably whistling as they were going down, going, well, that was amazing. But when they go down to is the disparity of humanity. They go right down into the chaos that, that meets them down below. This large crowd is gathered around the disciples, and the disciples are fighting with the scribes. And they're yelling back and forth, and the scribes are arguing with the disciples, pointing fingers at the disciples. The disciples are yelling at them, and a crowd's like, there's a fight. There's a religious leader fight. This is the funnest kind of fight. So let's all get around them and watch them fight. <laughs> and Jesus comes off the mountain, and the crowd sees Jesus. Now, commentators don't know if it's like, Jesus' face was glowing. I don't really think it was glowing because he told him not to tell anybody about what happened. So it doesn't make sense that his face would be glowing like Moses did when he came off the mount. But anyways, they see him and they get excited. And the whole crowd just rushes Jesus. Everyone's excited, but everyone's still arguing. So they're arguing and excited. It was probably really weird, okay? Like, hi, Jesus, and there, and there's yelling and screaming. And so Jesus asks, what are you guys arguing about? 
Why is everybody fighting? And this is where we meet dad. This dad comes out of the crowd, and this dad had a young boy who has seizures since he was very young. You could say this boy had epilepsy. But even if we give this boy's affliction a modern medical name, it still does not alleviate the evil behind what Mark is trying to portray here. We could say, okay, yeah, he had epilepsy. And you're like, okay, yeah, that happens. But see, you're not really reading the story carefully because Mark, yes, he does have epileptic characteristics, but that's not exactly what Mark is trying to get, get through to us here. First, it says that he had an unclean or a demonic spirit. Not because these are archaic people and they couldn't describe what was, going, what was happening when this, when this, with this kid, so they're like, oh, it's a demon. In Mark's narrative, unclean speaks of a separation from God. This kid, this boy was separated from God. Not only that, he was deaf and mute, the scriptures say. This boy was isolated from human communication. He could not tell his dad what was happening to him. He could not communicate to his dad the evil that was going on inside of him. And even probably worse yet, when dad tried to console his little son, he couldn't hear his dad. When he would have a seizure and dad would grab him to console him, to tell him that everything's going to be all right, that he's there, son could not even make out dad's words. This boy was isolated from human connection. And not only that, it says that this demon attempted to destroy this youth by throwing him into the fire and into the water, which means that there was some satanic purpose going on. And this father has dealt with this hopeless situation for years, and he comes to Jesus absolutely desperate. But Jesus was up on the mountain of transfiguration glowing and hanging out with Moses and Elijah. So dad brings son, like, where's Jesus? Like, he's up on the mountain. And so what dad does is like, well, the disciples that are left behind, can you guys help my son? Can you guys cast a demon out? Now, if you've read Mark, if you've been with us, you know, this shouldn't be a problem for them, right? I mean, they've done this before. Dad comes up with the boy. He has a demon. Can you help? And the disciples are like, yeah. I mean, that's what we do. We are given authority. Look at what happens in verse 7 in chapter 6 of Mark. And Jesus called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. So they had this authority. They had this power. And so when dad brings boy, they're like, yeah, we can handle this. We've done this. The people have seen the disciples do this. They've seen, they're like, we're, we're pros. He specializes in demons with boys. I specialize in demons with girls. This one specializes. We're all, we all have specialties with demons. He's really good at casting them out. I'm really good at throwing them into pigs. It's really a complex thing or whatever. And they, they've done this before. They've gone on mission trips where they've cast this, this, these kind of things out. So they try, but they couldn't cast this demon out. They tried every single thing over and over and over again, and they could not cast it out. And the scribes got wind of it and like, hey, why can't you cast it out? And they're like, we don't know. It doesn't work anymore. We've tried everything. It doesn't work. And everyone's arguing. And the dad is distraught. And listen to what happens in verse 17. He says, teacher, this is the dad speaking to Jesus. I brought my son to you. See the identification of the disciples with Jesus? I brought my son to you. He has had a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, 
it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. At this point, Jesus absolutely laments. He realizes that when he comes off this mountain, he is surrounded by so much faithlessness. Everybody in the circle is faithless. So much doubt, so much unbelief. How much longer before they, 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 they can't get it? How much longer? That's why he says, how much longer do I, should I, shall I bear with you? It's like Jesus is saying, how much longer do you have before I go to the cross and you miss this completely? How much longer do you have to believe in me? And then he asks for the boy. Bring the boy to me. And when the boy is brought to Jesus, the demon sees that it's really Jesus, and he throws the boy into a full demonic seizure. And he convulsed the boy, and the boy fell on the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus does something a bit strange. I always used to read this going, this is really, really weird. I mean, if you think about it, it's really strange. Boy's brought, the boy goes into a full seizure that's very demonic, on the ground, rolling around, foaming and spitting, and Jesus just goes, how long has he been this way? You're like, wait, what? No, you, you should do something maybe, not ask questions. Like here, he's fully manifesting. Like cast it out, do something, grab him, something, and you just start talking to dad. How long has he been this way? Now, this is not out of character. He does, Jesus has done this before. He doesn't see the boy and just hail him right away. He waits. Now listen to this. He waits. He doesn't just see the boy go, oh my gosh, that's pretty bad. Let's go, boom, let's, let's heal this boy. Let's get him fixed right up. What we get is this unexpected temporary postponement of the cure. Why does Jesus do this? Jesus is bringing to surface the fundamental importance of faith. Jesus is waiting because he needs to bring to the surface in this dad's heart the fundamental, fundamental importance of faith. Do you believe? Where's your heart? As the boy is rolling around in the dirt, foaming at the mouth, his dad's heart is just breaking. Dad looking at his son, his heart breaking. And because his boy is so dear to him, because he loves his boy so much. This is why he said, can you help us? I mean, it's not just help my boy, but help us. He loves his son so much, and seeing his son the way he is on the ground, this demon totally having his way with, the, with this boy, breaking his heart, Jesus is making the father confront his own heart. He puts his finger right on the thing that was most precious to him. See, when we ask, when you ask, when I ask, God, this is just what I want. This is my request. This is, I, and, I, and I know that there have been people in, this, in, in here that have asked for so many things, great and awesome things. I, I, I just, your prayer request could be a job, a career, a spouse, some vice that you wrestle with all the time. I just want God to take it away. Or I just want God to, to bring somebody in my life. I just want God to do this thing. Can God do it? And there's a delay. It's like, I don't know how long. Like, why is God waiting? Why can't he just do something like that? 
Whenever God is waiting, he's working. And what he's doing, he's putting his finger on the thing that's most precious to dad. What he's doing to you and what he does to me is he puts his finger on what's most precious to us. I want a relationship so bad, and he just has a way of wait when he's waiting. He puts his finger on the things that you and I value the most. I can't help to think of one of my best friends, Britt, who um, was here last or early this year, and he taught, and he shared his story about his daughter, Daisy Love, when she got cancer over a year ago. And the night before surgery, when she was going into have the tumor in her stomach that was just discovered removed that was the size of a Nerf football. As he was, as, as the night before she was going into that surgery, Britt just pretty much late into the night just held Daisy, just held her in his arms. His tiny little baby daughter holding her. And it was that night that Jesus put his finger on the thing that was most precious to Britt. Now, I've, I know Britt pretty well. I know the things that he's given up to follow Jesus, to be in ministry, the things that he surrendered to, to Christ. But this was a whole different level. That night, Jesus literally put his finger right on that thing and said, do you trust me? And not, and not, and not Britt, do you trust me to heal your daughter? Because that wasn't, that wasn't in the, the, he said that wasn't in the conversation with God at all. It was, do you trust me, Period. No matter what happens, do you trust me? I, I put my finger on the thing that's most precious to you. Do you see how precious she is to you? At that moment, he knew she was way more precious than he ever thought. Do you still trust me? And he had to come to that place late into the night where, yes, no matter the outcome tomorrow, tomorrow whether she lives or she dies, yet I will praise you. I love you more. That's the place he had to get to. See, this is exactly what Jesus was doing here with the dad. And just that little delay. I mean, it could be seriously seconds or it could be years. Where God delays, that thing that you're like, what, I, just do this thing, God. It's not that he, you could snap and it could be done like that. You could take this away and he delays. You're like, why are you delaying? You know what? I'm over this. I can't do this anymore. You can't be joking around with me, God. I'm a, I'm a human here, okay? I'm alive. I'm a person. I have feelings. What God does is just presses his finger right on the thing that you press, that you, you, you love the most. And he says, do you trust me with that? Not trust me to like bless it and like blow it up, make it awesome and big and huge and you're global. But do you trust me with it no matter what happens? And the dad says, verse 22, but if you can do anything, this point, he's like, Jesus, you're probably, you probably want to do something, but if you can do something. I don't even know if you're able to do it. Your disciples, they're kind of a hack job. They, they didn't really do a good job. And the scribes, they're, they're good for nothing. They're like quoting things to me. I don't even know what they're talking about. If you can do anything, have compassion. I mean, falling on Jesus' compassion. Have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to them, if you can? What do you mean, if I can? If you can, and he says this, all things are possible for the one who believes. 
And immediately the father of the child cried out. Jesus just touched it. Touched that thing that was most precious to him. Revealed to him his own disbelief. Revealed to him his own inadequacy. And the dad just cried out. He's like, I believe, probably one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. Remember I said this section in Mark is fundamentally about what it looks like to follow Jesus. And what it looks like to follow Jesus on the way to the cross. From here, the mountain transfiguration down, he's going to the cross. What does it look like to follow, follow a crucified Messiah? This is something that we might not hear or think about a lot. But I want you to think about it right now. Christian discipleship, following Jesus, is about faith and it's about doubt. Following Jesus is about faith and about doubt. It's, I believe, but I'm also a doubter. Help my unbelief. See, at, at first this man said, if you're even capable of helping us, Jesus, and then Jesus rebukes him, and then he said, okay, fine. Help me just as I am a doubter. Jesus, then help me just as I am. I'm a doubter. I mean, what does that mean? Help my unbelief. See, this dad was not praying that his unbelief might be helped till it came to the point where it was worthy of a response from God, where it was worthy of healing. He wasn't like, okay, Jesus, would you please help my faith to increase enough so that you can actually do something? My faith right now is 1.5. If you can get it to 5.5, then you could do something. You can work with 5.5, but you probably can't work with 1.5, so could you increase my faith to that place where it meets the minimum requirement? That's not what this dad was saying. He was not saying, Lord, I have a little faith. Give me some more so that it gets large enough to where you can act. See, that's what a lot of people think about faith. Like, if God gave me more faith, then he could do something with that. If I believed more, then God can use me. If I just believed more. And that's how people think about faith, and that's wrong. What he's saying is that I can only come to you as I am. I can only come to you as a doubter. I only really come to you in honesty. I'm really here more as a doubter than a believer, but I still come to you. Help me. See the honesty there? I mean, think about that honesty. I have doubts. I have fears and worries and disbelief, but you know what? I still come to you. I, I don't know what to do with them. I can't lie to you about them because you know my heart. I can't fake my way through Christianity. Here it is. I have doubts and worries and fear but I still come to you because you're bigger than all of them. Because there's two types of doubt. The first type of doubt is a doubt that keeps God in a box, to use a fairly overused statement. A doubt that keeps God in a box. Like, I don't want to believe in God. I don't want to, Him to be true. I don't want Him to be real. I don't want to trust in Him. I know about the way He works. I know about His followers, and I don't want any part of it. This doubt is a doubt that refuses to believe. I will not believe in Jesus. This is the kind of doubt that Jesus found at Nazareth, his hometown, when he went there in chapter 6. He goes to Nazareth, and it says in chapter 6, verse 6, that he could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief. This was a belief of like, Jesus, we know you're a carpenter. We, you grew up in this town. We know your parents. We know your brothers and sisters. We have you in our little box. You're not the Messiah. Go away from us. We're not going to believe in you. 
that kind of doubt that, that refuses to believe in God, that's altogether different. This doubt, this doubt here is a doubt that surrenders itself to God. This is a doubt that comes before God in all of their honesty, honest doubts, and says this, I have doubts, but I also believe that you are bigger than my doubts. Help my unbelief. Listen to what happens here. This is kind of interesting. When we go on with doubts and we surrender our doubts to God, those doubts become faith. Because you surrendered those doubts to God and go, I, tr- I trust you with these doubts. You're putting your faith in Jesus with your doubts. Here we get a very good symbol for the Christian disciple because logically faith and unbelief are opposites. And we always think of them as opposites. But in the Christian experience, they are simultaneous realities. The one who believes is always concurrently involved in a battle against disbelief. If you're a follower of Jesus in here and you're a believer, you believe in Jesus, but you are always, always confronted with the battle of disbelief. Unbelief is always creeping into your marriage. Unbelief is always creeping into your time spent in prayer. It's always creeping into your identity, into your relationships. Unbelief is always wants to take over. Why? Because faith. Now, I want you need to listen to me because if you tune out, you might think I said something I didn't say, okay? So listen. Faith is not a secure possession attained once for all. Faith is always being threatened with unbelief from which the believer needs rescue. So clarification, God is a secure possession because he has us more than we have him. However, faith is not because there's always an assault on faith. There's always something coming against our faith. There's always something that the believer needs to be rescued from. And this is exactly what this dad does. He's like, I believe, but I have all these doubts. So this dad pleads for help just as he is a doubter. He's the only one in the story that confesses his weakness. He's the only one that says, I'm weak, which means he comes to Jesus not on his own merit. He doesn't come to Jesus like, hey, I have a lot of faith, Jesus. Can you do something about that? He doesn't come on his own merit at all. He comes on Christ's merit. I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but I'm still riddled with all these doubts. I believe, but I'm still wrestling through all of this stuff. He comes to Jesus on not on his own merit, but on Christ's merit. And this is the way that we get in, through helplessness, through confessing that we need help. We don't have all the faith. We don't have all the answers. I believe, help my unbelief. And the father does not place his trust in his own capacity to go on trusting and believing. He looks beyond himself to the object of his faith, Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus do? He raises the boy from the dead. Now, does he raise the boy from the dead or does it look like that? Everyone's divided. I I, I tend to think that he didn't, but the, the language that Mark uses here is actually resurrection language. That's why it says, and he arose. Before this child can have life, there had to be a death. And this is the way of Jesus. Before there is real, abundant, true life in Christ, there has to be a death. The way to ascend 
is to go down in humility. Next, Jesus and the disciples. This is really quick. After Jesus heals this boy, the disciples ask him privately, and they should have. They're like, um, Jesus, why couldn't we cast out the demon? I mean, you gave us power. You gave us authority. We tried everything in the books. Why couldn't we cast it out? Verse 29, Jesus said to them, this kind, this is very interesting, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the verse that we um, started praying for this church with. This is the verse two years ago when we were here, two and a half years ago now, when we were here for the first time praying through San Francisco. This was the verse that God gave us to go, this is how you need to pray for San Francisco. That this kind, this church, and this kind of city will only be done through prayer. And it'll only happen through prayer. And our response was, we believe, but help our unbelief. We believe that you can do something amazing, help our unbelief. Now, the curious thing here, I don't know, if, if you're a, an observant reader, you probably caught on to this. Jesus said, okay, guys, this demon doesn't come out by anything but prayer. But did you notice that Jesus didn't pray when he cast out the demon? You notice that? He's like, okay, this kind of come out by prayer, and then they would have like, but you didn't pray. Like, what, what does that mean? So Jesus obviously wasn't talking about some specific in, incantation or a special saying that the, that the demon's like, you're supposed to say this, this, and this, and then raise your voice at the end, and then shake your hand like that, and boom, demon's gone. He, he didn't give him a formula. That's not what he's talking about. What Jesus was talking about here was this. Jesus was talking about complete dependence upon God. You want this demon out? It takes complete dependence on God. That's what prayer is. So when the disciples asked, why couldn't we? Now, the emphasis in the Greek is on the we, meaning the disciples, us. Why can I cast out the demon? And this is why. Listen. Because you never possessed the power to. You were never the source. It was always God. Because it wasn't about you ever. It was about God. And somehow your successes, in your successes, you were encouraged to trust in yourself and in your techniques rather than in God. And isn't that the truth for us? When we have great successes, how many of you guys, when you have great successes, you chart what you did that week? You're like, okay, I woke up at this time and I ate this kind of cereal and I went to this coffee house, and I, I read this book of the Bible, and that's how my week was awesome this week. That's how I got the promotion at work. I'm going to keep doing that. And then we, what we tend to do is trust in our techniques. We tend to trust in ourselves rather than in God. And we do that. I do that, I do that here. I'm like, okay, I felt really good about that sermon. Okay, what did I eat this morning? Okay, I ate that. And then what did I do this week? Okay, I did that, and I did that. I'll do that again next week. It's not formulaic. And when you do this at work, when you have a great week at work, you get a promotion or something like that, we think, well, it was, what did I do to get this done? And what that is is a form of unbelief because you're trusting in these things now. You're trusting in your abilities. You're trusting in your techniques. You're trusting in that rather than in God. And again, this account shows that the disciples are a lot like us. That's why I love the book of Mark. Disciples, you're like, oh my gosh, I can't relate to anybody in the Bible. Oh yeah? Disciples here are prone to failure, ready to engage in arguments, 
undisciplined in prayer life, and often more eager to learn foolproof techniques of success than to spend time walking closely with God. A lot of you guys are like, uh, peg me. That's me. And this is exactly what Mark's getting at. Following Jesus, it exposes, this is how we live. See, Jesus calls us to take to tasks way beyond our abilities. I know that this church has so many, I, I, almost, I have to repent often. I meet so many people and you guys do the coolest jobs ever. You guys do all this fun stuff, creative, smart, all this stuff. And you guys, like all these things, you like change the world or whatever, all right? You're amazing, all this stuff. Welcome to church, okay? Oh my gosh, my pastor told me I'm amazing today. Okay, whatever. So, you guys are all these things, but I know this. I also know this as well, is that Christ calls us to tasks way beyond our abilities. You guys are like, well, of course I have this job. You don't know what school I went to or what I've done in this industry or that industry to get where I'm at, but you know what? Christ calls you beyond that. Because not only are you supposed to be good at your job, but you're supposed to be good at your job and bring in the justice of God and the mercy of God and the love of God and the reconciliation of God in your jobs. Now, all of you guys know that you're cheesy right now, right? You're like, oh my gosh, I thought I was good at my job until you said that. God calls us to things way beyond our abilities. So not only are you supposed to be good at numbers and good at an art and good in all these other industries that you are a part of, I just named two, but you guys have many of them, okay, whatever. All of these things that you're a part of, not only are you supposed to be good at those things, but you're also be ushering in and bringing in the reconciliation of Christ because as followers of Jesus, we are ministers of reconciliation. Are you capable of doing that? And all of us raise our hand and say, no. God calls us to things way beyond our abilities, which shows us that the ministry is Christ's, not ours. And in order to see the work of Christ in us and through us, it will take dependence in prayer. What the disciples lacked, what did they mess up? They didn't depend on God. Henry Nouwen said this about prayer. Prayer is a way of being empty and useless in the presence of God and so of proclaiming our basic belief that all is grace and nothing is simply the result of hard work. It's all grace. Can I encourage you this week and whatever you do in your job or as a husband, wives, people in relationships, people that live in this city, in this area, be dependent on God in prayer. Go to God like this dad did, like, I believe, help my unbelief. Go to God like the disciples should have. I'm dependent on you in prayer to follow through with what I'm supposed to be doing. I know I went to college to do what I'm doing, but I need your help and your strength to do this. And finally, as we close, Jesus and us. Jesus here, and we see when we back up from this pericope of this story, Jesus is coming down from the glorious mount of transfiguration where he shined with heaven's glory down to the disparity of humanity. Jesus comes down from the glory of the mount, of mount transfiguration down to confront the misery and the disease and the hard-heartedness of humanity but also Jesus comes down to fulfill our desperate hopes. This dad had so much hope down there that God could do something for him. And Jesus comes down from that glorious mountain. He didn't have to. He could have stayed there. He comes down into our mess, into our world to confront our hopes, our brokenness, our disparity, our hard-heartedness, our unbelief, our misery, and our disease. 
And when he comes down, there's a picture of youth in the grip of evil and parental anguish and disciples that are battling against each other and fighting because they don't succeed. And the scribes, the leaders of the church then were arguing. This entire scene, this pastor once said, Dick Lucas, who's a pastor in London, taught this text in the 70s. He said, this, is, this scene is our world in miniature. I love that. This little scene here is the gospel in miniature. The gospel writers like Mark and Matthew and others would travel with these, with these stories here, and they would share these stories in these texts to preach the whole basic gospel. They saw in these stories miniature pictures of the world in which we lived and the way Christ has come into our world, how Christ has come down. He has condescended into our world. The painter Raphael, who was made popular in my generation by Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, his last painting was called The Transfiguration. And look at the dichotomy as you look at this painting. The top half of the painting represents and symbolizes the, the purity, the symmetry, the power of Christ. Look at the top, how beautiful that is. But then the bottom half of the painting, the flaws of man, how it's dark and chaotic. It just, everything's just at the bottom and everyone looking up to Jesus. And what happens right at this moment is that Jesus comes down. This is the Christmas story retold. This is the Christmas story retold. The Christmas story is retold throughout the entire New Testament. That Christ and the glory of heaven comes down into our mess, into our world to take on himself sin, death, and the devil. To win for us our salvation, to deliver us from evil, everything that threatens our relationship with God, us as humans, everything. Christ comes and gets right in the middle of all of that and he deals with it. And that's why we sing in that famous Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity, Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Meaning, of course, God with us. Hark the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn king. He has come down into our world for us. And as he does, With all of our doubts, we go to him. With everything that we have in honesty, can I ask you guys please to be honest before God? Like I have all these doubts, I have these worries, but I come to you anyway, and I come to you just as I am. Let's do that this morning. Let's put our faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I pray, God, that you would draw us to yourself. You're beautiful and you're so good, God. I know that, Lord, there's so many questions that we don't have answers for. I pray that we'd have the faith, this faith like this dad who just comes just as he is, doubts and all. I mean, as we come to you with all of our doubts, Lord, we we, we know that it isn't because our faith is great, is because the object of our faith is great. It's in you, and you're great. We turn to you and ask that you would heal us, the broken parts, that you would put them back together. And Lord, if, you're, if, if there's, I know that there might be people in here that are just waiting for you to do something, and you're delaying. 
I pray they know that you're, you're, not, you're not just waiting pointlessly, you're working. I pray even this morning you put your finger on things that we, things are so precious to us, and we would trust you with them. In Jesus' name, amen.